Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from a Prova education activity titled Improving Treatment for Type 2 Diabetes, Overcoming Barriers to Optimal Care. Hello, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Improving Treatment for Type 2 Diabetes, Overcoming Barriers to Optimal Care. I'm a board-certified family physician, clinical professor of family medicine at Temple University School of Medicine, and chairman of the Department of Family Medicine at St. Francis Hospital. And what I want to do this particular talk is talk about diabetes issues and what we need to know about it. There are several learning objectives today. We want to become more aware of national guidelines on management for type 2 diabetes, inclusive of glycemic control and recommended lifestyle, exercise, and nutritional changes. We want to more confidently set appropriate glycemic targets for patients in their clinical practice by employing validated treatment strategies that focus on achieving optimized outcomes for each patient. In addition, we want to adhere to screening, prevention, and treatment guidelines for comorbidities common to patients with type 2 diabetes. Finally, we want to develop customized strategies to ensure greater patient compliance through patient education that overcomes barriers to medication adherence and self-care. Now, when you look at diabetes, you have to basically look at what's going on in our country. There are many stories that we see in the news. There are many reports that we get, and certainly there are many patients we see in our offices that show that obesity is a problem in this country. If you look at some data, you can see the age-adjusted percentage of adults in the United States who were obese or who had diagnosed diabetes. If you look at back in 1994 and move out to 2008, take a look at the increase in obesity. In particular, take a look at the parts of the country that it hits. It's widespread. Certain areas are targeted more. But then follow the path of diabetes from 1994 to 2008. We see a similar growth. And that's not unexpected because if you think about it, people who are obese are at greater risk of developing type 2 diabetes, and that is a major concern. Now, we want to look at certain issues, and here's a potential issue that you should think about this question. Based on 2011 data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the estimated numbers of Americans over 20 who are pre-diabetic are 1, 25 million, 2, 35 million, 3, 57 million, 4, 79 million, or 5, 84 million. Well, the prevalence of diabetes in the United States is a problem. And if we look at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and their statistics, we know that about 25 million people have diabetes. And more than 7 million people with diabetes remain undiagnosed. 10.9 million adults over the age of 65 have diabetes, and nearly 50% have prediabetes. Now, prediabetes is something we're going to talk about and something that's clear that we need to recognize in our practices. It's not something we thought of to such a great extent in the past, but clearly we're learning the importance of it now. Of 79 million adults, more than 20 have prediabetes. Now, that's a very important number. Overall, approximately 40% of the United States population has some hyperglycemic condition. And there has been a 25 to 50% increase in children with type 2 diabetes. And this is another big issue because if you think about that, you have to realize that what we are facing is people are going to have symptoms of diabetes earlier 
and earlier and the long-term effects and problems associated with it. And we do know that diabetes is the seventh leading cause of death in the United States. So when we look at the state of diabetes in America, as we call it, we can look at the age-adjusted percentage of adults in the United States who had diagnosed diabetes. You can see particular parts of the country where there's concern, and that's obviously in the southern areas where we have issues. But if you look around the entire country, we're seeing a growth and we're seeing potential problems. Now, diabetes prevalence rates in the U.S. belt area are something that I just referred to, and we do know there's a higher proportion of people with diabetes found in southern states compared to the rest of the United States. Now, we're not including Hispanic or African Americans in this particular report. Obesity prevalence was 32.9% in the belt area compared to 26.1% in other states. 30.6% acknowledge sedentary lifestyle compared to 24.8% in other states. We also know 24.1% have a college degree versus 34.3% in all other states. So we see education affecting it. We see the lifestyle affecting it. And people with diabetes in the southern part of the country having concerns. So all of these things are issues. Of course, when we talk about diabetes, we need to talk about the proper management of the condition. Now, there was a report, again, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and they did a national health interview survey between 2007 and 2009. And they found that among adults with diagnosed diabetes, type 1 or type 2, 12% take insulin only, 14% take both insulin and oral medication, 58% take oral medication only, And 16%, they don't take either insulin or oral medication. So if you look at those studies and you try to figure out what's going on, you realize that there is a definite difference in treatment as we move along. As far as the prevalence and risk of diabetes complications, we know in our own practices the reason we are screening and we're concerned about diabetes is that we are worried about many things. In particular, we're worried about the long-term effects. We have those long-term concerns. One of the big issues is renal disease. Now, if you look at renal disease as a cause of death in the United States in 2007, there were 43,000 deaths that were a result of renal disease. Of those attributed to diabetes were 57.4% of them. Now, that is significant. You look at cerebrovascular disease. In the United States in 2007, there were over 150,000 deaths. Attributed to diabetes, the percentage was 37.6%. Cardiovascular disease, 739,000 deaths as a result of cardiovascular disease. 16.5% could be attributed to diabetes. So what does that tell us? Well, we know that adults with diabetes have a coronary vascular disease mortality of two to four times higher than adults without diabetes. That's a very important issue. We also know that diabetes is the leading cause of new blindness in adults aged 20 to 74. In fact, there are 12 to 24,000 new cases of blindness attributed to diabetic retinopathy each year. What about criteria for the diagnosis of diabetes? And certainly this is something that we look at and we try to figure out, and we do it by different measurements. For instance, the hemoglobin A1C. Now, if the hemoglobin A1C is about 6.5%, that they believe this is a possible general criteria, makes sense for the diagnosis of diabetes, but this test should be performed in a laboratory using a method that's certified and standardized. As far as of fasting glucose, we're talking about 126. 
Now, fasting is defined as no caloric intake for at least eight hours. We know of the two-hour plasma glucose. We're looking at about 200 during the glucose tolerance test. The test should be performed as described by the World Health Organization using a glucose load containing the equivalent of 75 grams anhydrous glucose dissolved in water. Another way we can look at it, in patients with classic symptoms of hyperglycemia or hyperglycemic crisis, a random plasma glucose of about 200. And again, we're looking at these things and we're trying to find out ways to measure if someone has diabetes. But again, we're really concerned about the issue of prediabetes, recognizing problems early. And I know as a primary care physician, and for those of you listening to this lecture, you have to realize that what we need to do is get out in front of this as early as we possibly can. Now, there are therapeutic targets that we want to have in the battle against diabetes. If you look within a period between 1999 and 2006, we had adults with type 2 diabetes and an A1C of less than 7%. Now, in 1999 to 2002, we were looking at about 43%. And if you're looking now in 2003 to 2006, that's up to 57%. There's other things we're concerned about, though. We're always worried about blood pressure. For instance, we want to keep the blood pressure in our diabetics less than 130 over 80. That's a very important goal. Well, as far as achieving success between 99 and 2002, we're at about 39%. 45% 2003 to 2006. So we are making strides. We're just not making strides at the rate we want, especially when we consider how many more people are obese and who are going to be at risk and having diabetes. The other thing we look at, of course, is the LDL, the bad cholesterol. We want that less than 100. And if you look at it again, between 99 and 2002, we were about 36%, 46% between 2003 and 2006. But remember, we're not living in a vacuum. We're trying to control all three. And the effect of controlling all three to successfully do it, those numbers are disappointing. It was 7% between 1999 and 2002. And despite all the teaching, the education, the advertising, the medications, everything that's out there, we're still only at 12%. Now, clearly, we want to do better with our treatment. Now, organizations have looked at this. They've looked at what we're trying to do as far as goals. And if you look at two major organizations, we, I can see the AACE, ACE back in 2009, the American Diabetic Association 2011, we have goals. We look at the A1C, 65 to 7.5% hemoglobin A1C is the goal. The LDLC, that's less than 100. Remember, you want less than 70 for patients with diabetes and coronary artery disease. The other issue is the HDL, the AACE, ACE say that the HDLC should be greater than 40 in men and greater than 50 in women. The other issue is triglycerides. Triglycerides we want to keep below 150. Now, all of these things are guidelines, and they're important guidelines. I don't particularly care if you're off by 5 or 10. I don't care if you're off for a period of time as long as you understand there's an issue and an issue that has to be treated. We cannot go at long periods of time ignoring this. So if a patient comes up to me and says, well, gee, my LDL's 110, I don't go crazy about it. I say, all right, let's work on some things. But if you come back in a few months, if we test you and you're not below there, we've got to work together to change it. And that's why I think these numbers, although they're very important, they are guidelines for us. We want to make sure we work with our patients and build that relationship 
to try to get them to do things and to do it over the long run. As far as a consensus, you know, there has been a consensus that was reached with recommendations from Accord, Advance, and the VA diabetes trials. And what we know from there is the A1C goal for non-pregnant adults in general is less than 7%. If you lower the A1C to about 7%, it has been shown to reduce microvascular and neuropathic complications. Let me say that again. This is very important. If you lower the A1C to about 7%, it's been shown to reduce the microvascular and neuropathic complications. For selected individual patients, a lower A1C goal may be recommended if achieved without significant hypoglycemia or other adverse effects. Obviously, hypoglycemia is a major player for people as far as them being disgruntled and not taking their medication because they're concerned and obviously don't want to feel that. So if you have patients, it includes those with a history of severe hypoglycemia, limited life expectancy, advanced microvascular or macrovascular complications, extensive comorbid conditions, Long-standing diabetes where goals have not been achieved despite optimal treatment. Again, this is a consensus that was looked at from three major trials, and I think that's very important. So let's go to another question. 2009 data from HEDIS suggests that approximately what percentage of type 2 diabetes mellitus patients in various health plans, commercial, Medicaid, Medicare, have a hemoglobin A1C greater than 9%? Is it less than 20%? Is it between 21% and 35%? Is it between 28% and 45%? Is it between 30% and 40%? Or is it greater than 50%? In your minds, just think, where do you think it is? Well, according to the National Committee for Quality Assurance, the NCQA, and the State of Healthcare Quality, poor diabetes control, hemoglobin A1C, greater than 9, is present in 287 to 44.8% of type 2 diabetes patients in commercial, Medicaid, and Medicare health plans based upon 2009 HEDIS. Now, listen, I don't care if you knew the exact percentage. I think the important point here for all of us is we're talking about 25 to 50%, that range. 287 to 44.8% is not something to snicker at. It's a very serious issue. We'll return with more from this activity of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs> 